Hey there, it's Melissa Brunetti, and welcome to the Mind Your Own Karma podcast. Hey there, Karma crew. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Mind Your Own Karma. I am so excited about this interview that I have for you today. I have Monica Hall on the show. She is not only an adoptee, but she is also a first mother. So getting this perspective of having the adoptee and first mother all wrapped into one episode is amazing. Let me tell you a little more about Monica. Monica is an author, adoptee, and birth mother. She was born in Canada, adopted by American parents, and raised in Anchorage, Alaska. It was there where she spent the first 16 years of her life and had many of the foundational experiences that drive her writing. Monica now lives in Northern California and began working on a memoir in spring of 2016 when her daughter urged her to document her extraordinary but painful past. Monica started by writing about her experience with adoption, but soon recognized that there was a larger story to explore. Once her memoir began taking shape, she realized she needed to uncover repressed childhood memories, dissect the mystery of reoccurring dreams, and face the demons that once drove her to self-destruct. Through the memoir writing process, she has also posted various essays about her life experiences on her website, monicahall.com. Although her memoir and essays tell the story of guilt, shame, and her troubled childhood, her remarkable story is also about empowerment and courage, and how pain can come full circle to healing if you don't quit before the miracle happens. Here is my interview with Monica Hall. So we are welcoming Monica Hall to Mind Your Own Karma today. Hi, Monica. Hi. <laughs> so Monica has a unique perspective because she's not only an adoptee, but she is also a first mother. Now, do you prefer first mother, birth mother? I want to be respectful. I don't care. Don't I mean, care. It, it, I've gone through all the iterations of that through <laughs> the years. So whatever, I'm, I'm good. Any of them. Do you notice in the birth mother community that they prefer one over the other? You know, I posted on Facebook not too long ago, a new banner. And on it, I said, author, adoptee, birth mother. And I had like 200 comments, like angry people. I resist birth mother. I mean, really pissed off. And then adoptive people, you know, adoptive parents were coming on and then adoptees were coming on. It was unbelievable. I could see the birth mothers wanting to be called that word first mother. And then that, but even adoptees were pissed. Yeah. I could yeah, see. I was, it, wow. It was, you should go on and check it out. It was actually quite entertaining. And, um, I didn't mean to start a ruckus, but right. Right. You know, it's pretty triggering. All of this is triggering for people. I get it. It sure is. But let's start with your adoption story, your personal adoption story. So talk about uh, your adoption. What do you know? And why were you put up for adoption? So I was born in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And I was relinquished. I went, I was in a foster home for four, for three months, three and a half months or something like that. And then my parents who were Californians and older, my dad was 42. My mom was 32. They've been living in Alaska since the 40s. And they flew down and picked me out of a foster home with six other babies. And I don't know if I was there just for display purposes or if I'd been there the whole time. I mean, one would think six babies with one lady, <laughs> not a lot of nurturing maybe going on. Wow. But they brought me home and they said I was happy baby. Cool. I was bald, but I was happy. You know, <laughs> I found out later I was born with dark hair, but yeah. So. And then I was a pretty happy kid, and we got my brother at, when I was three. That's when things went south for me. Was he adopted? He was super, yeah. So they adopted Mount Edmonton as well. He was super high need. He um, cried all the time. He was gangly. He needed fattening up. Oh, this is this is crazy. So the adoption lady, the foster lady that was caring for him, told them they were getting a really good one and not high maintenance infant because he slept through the night. And my brother's super sensitive. And I, I think he had failure to thrive syndrome. Probably. And so 
my mom being a nurturer kind of dropped me like a hot potato and was there for my brother because I was strong and, and not apparently needy, super needy, but not apparently, you right. know, I think she's always felt that way about me as, you know, I didn't need her. I needed her. Yeah. I, I just didn't show it. And so I think that's when my dad swooped in, you know, I could swallow handfuls of, you know, horse sized pills and take castor oil and beat all the boys in races at the park strip. And I was the boy he didn't get. And, you know, I was being groomed, you yeah. know, which mm-hmm. is part of my story, which most of which was um, repressed. I did a lot of repressed memories. Yeah, that's what happened. And I grew up in Anchorage, Alaska. And we're super Catholic, really Catholic family. We had nuns at the house and priests at the house. And every holy day, I was named after a nun. I was named after the Virgin Mary. Uh So I'm Mary Monica. Yeah. And so that's that's the basics. So back up for a second, because you said that there were six babies. Were they picking from those six babies? Or were you like already picked out? I was important because they chose me. Oh, wow. And so my mom would tell me bedtime stories and, you know, do our prayers and then bedtime stories about how uh, they got to pick me out of a group of babies and I was special. My other mother wanted me to have two parents. And so that's how they got me, that she loved me enough to give me two parents. So I grew up hearing special. Isn't that crazy? But not feeling special. I was, um, I was always looking for attention. Um, maybe that's part of a a overactive ego, probably part of my nature, but really needy for attention and always wanting to beat the boys and be the best of things. And I didn't do well in school. I had learning disabilities. I couldn't pay attention. I had probably was undiagnosed attention deficit disorder and maybe some dyslexia, I don't know, but Mm -hmm. super low self-esteem. And when I was in uh, first grade, I remember clearly sitting down at the table and writing my numbers for the first time. And I couldn't transition from like, maybe it was 19 to 20 or 10 to 11 or nine to 10. I don't remember something like that. But what happened is I felt this horrible, like I wasn't, I wasn't good enough. My dad was frustrated. He couldn't, Mm. my mother would push herself away from the table and say, how are you helper? You know, like super frustrated. And my parents were really smart. My father had won the state telling bee for California as a child. My mother, uh, they were really smart people. And I felt really stupid, you know, really stupid. And so childhood was, I couldn't make them proud by school. I could make them proud by being strong, you know, being a tomboy and things like that. And I was bullied a little bit in elementary school because my mom was super overprotective and they'd never let me do anything. I couldn't really go anywhere. And then my, um, the latchkey kids were cool because they had less supervision. Mm. And, you know, it wasn't until I was 13 where there was a click, a switch was flipped And for many years, I didn't understand what that was, but I I know now, I mean, I've been working on this memoir for seven years, and that has illuminated so much of things that I repressed as a a kid, so. Yeah, low self-esteem seems to be a common theme with adoptees. So what was it like growing up in your adoptive family? My dad was in real estate. He picked on my brother nonstop. It was horrible. Every time he saw him, all he did was pick on him. Sit up to the table. Put your napkin in your lap. Don't slurp so loud. What are you doing? Playing with those lousy troll dolls again? Things like that. My brother was super sensitive. And he was jealous of my my brother. He was also picked on me, but nothing like my brother. So it was a really uncomfortable place to live. Mm. Kids didn't hang out at my house. No one wanted to be there, including me. It wasn't a warm place to come. I always yearned and was uh, attracted to kids with families that were large, where there was an open door policy, you know, where where I felt welcome and unjudged. But that was not my house Mm. at all. And uh, my mom was a rager. She was a good mother. And then she was. uh, So this is another thing. (laughs) So I only have my experience growing up. I had nothing to, uh, no yardstick to measure good parents by. So I always thought I got good parents. 
Yeah. And now I look back and I'm like, oh my gosh, if they did a, took a psych eval or a background check, they'd never be allowed to dot today with the things that went on in my household. Mm. And, but I thought I got good parents. I was adopted. I was chosen and Mama loved me. She was always super afraid something was going to happen to me. And I was groomed by uh, bedtime stories when I was little, a Forbes story, you know, it was sort of like Dumbo Mm -hmm. where Forbes got lost, his little baby elephant and the kids found him crying took a taxi back to the circus and mommy and daddy elephant were so happy that for, you know, so I was groomed that my mom, it would kill her if I was lost or taken back by my birth mother. Mm. But back when I was adopted, it was called natural mother. Wow. Mama called her other mother. Okay. So over the years, that narrative has changed. And now it's like in flux. We don't know what we're supposed to say. You know? right. Or who's exactly. going to get angry by what we use as, you know? Right. Yeah, so. Sorry. I know. I know. So how are you with your uh, brother? What's your relationship with him now or growing up? Was it a good relationship? Well, my brother, I picked on him too. I never hurt him physically, but as soon as my parents left, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I chase him. I hold him down. I you know, rough him up on his <laughs> I think chest. That's pretty normal. <laughs> yeah, I I get I drink milk, so I had really gooey spit, and then I'd stand, hold him down, and like, it's <laughs> like no, no, you know. But then he'd go and run in the bathroom, and I'm going to tell mom and daddy you smoke. I'm telling mama you smoke, and I beg him not to outside the door, and then he'd come out, and he's always uh, forgave me. Aww. He was such a good soul, just a sweetheart. But then he was also kind of like a little puss, you know, in the yeah. neighborhood. And he'd, my sister, Monica Hall's going to beat your ass. So he could kind of, because I was a fighter. <laughs> I was beating up everybody. By the time I hit like 13, um, I there, like I said, there was a change um, in me. But he annoyed me, but I loved him. And yeah. I still do. He now lives with me. He's in the other end of the house. Oh, okay. That's a whole battle. We'll probably get to that in the next part. <laughs> So did you ever find your biological family? Yes, I um, always wanted to find, especially when I was 15, when that changed. And I just didn't know it was possible. I didn't know that there was, you know, I thought they were like lost. You know, there was no, my parents had never mentioned anything of knowing any of their identity or anything about them. So sort of like I'd have as much luck finding my first mother as message in the bottle. You know, it was just... But then when I was 23, we, we moved from Alaska when I was 16 and, and lighted here in Sacramento area. And at 23, I joined um, ALMA, Adoptee Liberty Movement Association. And it was a, uh, a group of people that would help you search. And mm-hmm. they showed you how to uh, create a binder. I should have brought it to show you. It's, a, it's about this thick. And it's a big binder and in it I had all these pages divided and the facts what I knew any paperwork that I had and all the research I was done um, timelines next steps things like that and there was a really nice couple yeah there was a really nice couple this is 1980 okay do the math Um, and they were Howard and Millie I believe was their name and they had helped their adult adopted daughter search for and find her family and they helped me strategize a search and so it didn't take a horrible long time although I sent letters I was born in Canada I sent letters to Pierre Trudeau trying to get my my records released I mean I did I said I did so many things and um, I did have by then non-identifying information Mm -hmm. so it said my birth name I was Gloria Deborah Reed Okay. Um, and that was the name that my mother actually wrote on the papers with her own hand, the, mm. you know, that she thought of with her own mind. And it's like the only tether I had to her was that name. Yeah. Right. And um, I thought, well, maybe she wanted to name me after herself so that I could find her easier because I just knew she'd want to know me. Mm. I never I was never worried about that for some reason. Mm-hmm. And so I. I knew that my birth mother had six brothers and no sisters, and I had her last name. I knew it was Reed because my father was supposed to be French. He was actually Aboriginal. And so I had the name, so I called all the Reeds in the phone book. Oh, wow. And I was able to get a hold of my uncle. He was the last one in Edmonton. So I did connect with my biological family. 
and um, have relationships today with both sides of my family. Both of them. So how was the reunion? Has it been good since day one? I mean, no, no bumps in the road or anything with the bi- biological absolutely. family? Absolutely. There's absolutely bumps. Mm. Um, but overall, it's been, it's been wonderful. My, I didn't get to meet my birth mother. Mm. She just was deceased. Oh, okay. And so when I talked to my uncle and found out that his sister was gone, so deflated, I thought I was going to yeah. get to talk to her. He was, he said, call me back. He didn't know who I was at first because I had, it was hidden. I didn't want to ruin anybody's family. I didn't want them to say no in case they blocked my search. Right. So um, the next call that I talked to him, he said that she had died at 30. Wow. Yeah. So. Um, Anything hereditary? I I don't think so. Um, she had a brain aneurysm. Oh, okay. Wow. Um, I think there is more to it than that. I've done mm. some research on that. Um, I recently had a brain scan to make sure I didn't have it because it's yeah. evidently hereditary. No brain, no, no problems there. But, and my, my biological father, I, I spent a lot of time in Canada and my sister comes. Well, she's actually coming in June for a, a short visit. And she was here for my birthday, not this last July. So, mm immediate connection with my mother's side of the family. I felt like as soon as I met my uncles, it was, these are my people. They, mm-hmm. I mean, I instantly felt connection, even though my mother was deceased. They were, you know, the key to that. On my father's side, very much different from them, all very different. I can see similarities in my, my sister and my birth father, but they're very reserved. They're not outgoing. They seem to have these silent communication skills between them that I'm not privy to. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's been a great experience overall, but it's not without complexities. Yeah. You know. So you have a sister from your dad's. Yeah. Um, any other siblings? Yeah. So on my dad's side, I have three brothers and one sister. My brother passed away. He was six months younger than me. Mm. He was in utero in his mom while I was in utero in my mom, but mine. And um, addiction, mm. he had a heart attack about six years ago. Um, and then on my mother's side, I have a brother and two sisters. And the oldest sister, the one that she had right after me, is the, is the one that I'm most connected to. Yeah. So are you the oldest? I'm trying to figure out. Are you the oldest out of everyone? Yeah. 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 So four three, nine. I'm the oldest. Did you have relationships with all of them? Yeah. I mean, my sister's in Vancouver now and my, all my cousins and whatnot, but on my birth father's side, they're not as techie. They're able to, you know, connect. We connect a little bit through Facebook. Uh, My birth father died a few years ago and his wife, Helen, just passed away last week. Oh. Like the last of the family Mm. of the, you know, and that's really sad. And there's some family drama around that up there. And oh boy. Um, it's, I'm sad for them. Yeah. yeah. Oh, shoot. So you said you grew up in Alaska and it sounded like it was a little crazy. So what happened? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a whole, that's a whole story. It's a whole book. Right. Um, and, and I've probably got a second book. I have this memoir that I just, just finished. Alaska, it was the 70s oil boom. So it was rowdy. There were massage parlors, houses of ill repute popping up on every corner. Mm -hmm. There was a base full of two bases full of men. Then we had all that money, like 900 million leases for land leases that the revenue was coming to Alaska. It was crazy. People were moving up. Um, And I was on a split shift in junior high and high school because they couldn't build schools fast enough. So it was it was a wild west. Open carry. People carried guns and knives around their belts. They had them in their in their truck. I mean, you never knew if they had something stashed under the seat or, you know, I was a teenager during that time and hitchhiking and I became a juvenile delinquent at 13. At 13. Mhm. Wow. And now I know why. I didn't for years know why that occurred, but there was a incident that happened that I just clicked and I became a vandal. I broke into houses. I stole cars. I fought. I vandalized. I beat people up. I was a bully. I was a brutal trouble kid. And I think what it was is, you know, looking back, I needed to feel loved. 
Mm. I didn't feel loved. I couldn't get that at school. I couldn't get that with the peers at school. They were either smart or they had, I wasn't any of those things I felt. And I thought if I'm the baddest kid, then somebody will look up to me. Mm. So the other bad kids looked up to me. And I didn't realize that, you know, that I, this was my survival strategy for what was going on in my household, for probably being relinquished and just wanting to be loved and cared about. For my mom had abandoned me, right. for my brother, and there was that jealousy, and there was things going on in my house, with my dad. It was a real mess. And so um, I stuck out my bedroom window almost every weekend, took LSD, mescaline, smoked hash, <laughs> sniffed a lot of glue. God, I wish I hadn't done that now. Mm-hmm. My memory is not as good as it could be. <laughs> And I didn't drink alcohol until we moved here to California, but I, I was just hurt. Yeah. And I, I had a lot of guilt for that years as growing up, um, years later, you know, as an adult. But now I can see that was my survival strategy. And, you know, as an adult, I forgive myself for those things. It's been a lot of work, but yes. Was there some, like a light switch that clicked that this all stemmed from? And now I can see it. I did some EMDR with a therapist. I've done um, multiple trips back to Anchorage. So much has been, you know, illuminated for me. And I found some really troubling, troubling things that I wondered what those things were about that happened to me. It was really dark for, um, I started writing in 2016. I put on weight in 2016. I just, here I'm trying, initially I started writing because my daughter, I have two kids, three kids, actually, my 30, now 38 year old daughter, she was like 32. And she said, Mom, you should really write a memoir. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, okay. What the hell? <laughs> what are you talking about? She said, well, you have a really incredible story. And I thought, you know, why have I been lugging around all these journals? And I have a, uh, a diary as early as 1968 when I was in sixth grade. Oh, wow. I've been lugging this stuff around for all these years and an and appointment book. So I have everything documented. Like, why am I keeping this crap? <laughs> and I think I intuitively knew that I needed to, I was going to use it. And so when I first started writing, I thought, this is for my healing so that I will uh, attract better circumstances. You know, oh, I've been pretty successful, yet I I have a, a reoccurring theme of betrayal, being betrayed, and choosing those people or those circumstances where I'm betrayed. And I thought, why am I doing this all the time? What is behind this? Mm. Is this something I can heal from? And so initially, it was for my healing. And then as I'm writing and digging, I realized that it was for others. Mm. it's for others, you know, because when I hear people's stories and I feel my heart open and I feel yeah. compassion, that's where healing happens. Yeah. So not the anger and the rage at the injustice of what happens, but it's the compassion for those. And if it can open your heart to their story, maybe it can open your heart to your story, you know, and, and there was a period of time in like 2017 where I called my mom and I, I was really dark. I was going through, uh, something that happened to me, and I just, I had seen as my fault for decades. I was 60 at this point. I said, Mama, I can't do this anymore. I can't keep writing. This killing me, like literally. Like I was getting really heavy, yeah. and I was just depressed. And I'm an outgoing person. I'm not a depressed person, right? Mm-hmm. And um, the next day, I get a, a message, a messenger from somebody, because they've been reading my blog post. As I was writing my memoir, it was like I needed to... I needed valve releases. So I would write these essays about things that related to my, you know, my memories or my past. And I had a lot of people from Alaska that follow me, people that I went to high school with in junior high. And this one individual, he sent me this long thing about what he had experienced with this woman that he, a girl that he'd loved and da-da-da-da-da. And, and he, nobody knew this stuff except wow. his mom who, was, who had passed. And me. So people started sharing their really intimate emotional pain with me through emails and messengers and phone calls and things. And I thought, oh, wow, this is just not for me. It's for them. Mm. And when I got that message from him, I knew that I needed to Mm. keep going. Yeah. It was like the universe sent me the answer the very next day. And uh, 
so yeah, I kept going and that's probably why I've been angry, angry the last week is because I think I'm letting it all go. It's done. I'm sending it to my editor for a final copy edit so I can start on the publishing process. So there's that. Wow. That's going to be a great book. Right? <laughs> oh, you have no idea. So I have this um, app on my phone, so I have it written in Word mm -hmm. so I can listen to it. Okay. And it's done, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So um, I've been listening to it the last couple of days, and I'm like, wow, what happens next? <laughs> like, I'm not that person. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my gosh. Wow. wow. And then I get emotional, and I realize, wait, this is my story. That's my story. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and it, it's not. It's, That's cool. It's really good. I'm surprised because I, I mean, I've written before, but not anything as in depth as a memoir, certainly. So um, it reads like a. Well, I could barely write my bio on my website. I was just like, how do these people write these books? I can't even write six paragraphs about myself and yeah. my experience. I mean, it was hard enough. Like I had to take it a paragraph at a time and I was just like taking breaks and being, you know, all dramatic about it. And I'm like, I don't know how these people write books about their. Yeah experience well I have an editor you know I had a, a, a woman this is crazy okay so I'm at work and um, we went before we were remote and I was standing over a co-worker's getting a resume redone and she had this woman's image on the screen and I I'm like who's that oh she's doing my resume I'm like I need an update on a resume right so I messaged this woman and uh, emailed her and I told her that I she couldn't she couldn't do the resume in the time that I needed but um, mm -hmm. I happened to mention that I was writing a memoir and I'd had wrote like five pages. That's it, right? One of the yeah. really devastating mm -hmm. things that happened to me, I started with. And and she says, oh, I'm a developmental editor. She was a former college professor for a literary nonfiction, which I you know wasn't really even clear what that was. And so I would send her and then she'd send it back. She's the one that got me to dig. Oh, wow. I'm not good at digging my emotions mm. out. She'd ask, well, why did you feel shame? Don't tell me, show me. Oh, what my was, and I thought, oh my God, I felt shame because... I didn't bleed or blah, 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 or whatever it was. Yeah. And um, so it's, it's been a digging. I owe her my life, really. It's been a digging process for seven years and a healing journey. Like a therapist. <laughs> Deeper than therapy. Uh, and in fact, uh, there yeah. were some things that I was going through. I have a girlfriend who is a, uh, a former judge and she, um, a de deputy district attorney, I mean, she, she said, you really should be in therapy. And I said, I don't want to. I don't recommend that for people, home viewers um, yeah. because I knew that if I did, I'd stop digging to the depth that I was digging. Mm. And, and I knew I, I was moving in the direction of healing and being able yeah. to see things from an adult perspective rather than the child mind that I was seeing everything with. Um, so, mm. yeah, maybe that's why I've been angry the last week is that it's just, <laughs> and I'm listening to it. So and it's going. Yeah. I'm yeah. sending it off, you know. Yeah. So at 15, you became pregnant. You were still in Alaska at that time? Yeah. So um, like I said, I was, you know, I was sneaking out my bedroom window. And part of that was to escape the oppression in my house. Mm -hmm. And I'm a free spirit. I didn't grow up with free spirited people. My brother, mm -hmm. my mother, my father, none of them are anything like me. They didn't look like me. They didn't talk like me. They weren't like me in any way, shape, or form. I felt like I was invisible. I felt like I didn't didn't belong, and I didn't understand why I didn't feel that. You know, I felt that way, but I wasn't like the kids that I wanted to hang out with. Well, I started hanging out with kids that had that were would be considered quote unquote lower companions. So we had we were middle class. My father we we owned our own home. He was self employed. My parents were educated, but yet the kids that I sought out were. They had broken homes, their kids were running amok, their siblings were in prison for prostitution and selling drugs, or they were carrying guns and knives, or they were heroin addicts, or, you know, one of my friends, her father run an illegal gambling after hours gambling facility out of their living room and prostitution. Wow. So these were the kind of kids I hung out with. And this was Alaska was a way different place. And in my memoir, Alaska or Anchorage is actually a character because it is a character, especially back then in the crazy 70s. So 
I was always thinking out my bedroom window just to escape, to have some freedom, because I didn't have that. Mm-hmm. And my mom would take me the one place she felt safe leaving was with, with the Friday night movies. Well, that's where I drop acid or mescaline or something, you know. <laughs> and then I'd come home oh, and I'd be so high that I had to sneak out my window because I would have freaked out. That's a term we use for yeah. being paranoid, being locked up. Right. So I'd sneak out my window and my father, we had this really weird. I think he must have had a Madonna complex because the importance that was put on being pure was thick in my house. And it's documented in my manuscript. And mm. and so suffice it to say, I, at 13, there was something that happened that clicked that switch. And I knew that I would make daddy proud. I never thought about this until my memoir and my editor said, well, this happened because you were trying to make daddy proud. I'm like, oh yeah, that's what it was. The obvious is never obvious to me, right? Mm -hmm. And so I became a juvenile delinquent, beating people up. But I was Monica Hall, the virgin, the badass virgin is going to kick your ass. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, (laughs) now people in Alaska are, um, you know, messaging me. Yeah, you chased me home from the movie theater once. And, oh, I was scared of you. You were a bully. And, oh, God, you know, I feel so bad about all that. (laughs) Really so bad. And I did some really mean things in junior high. All because I wanted to feel, I wanted to feel like somebody. Mm. It was really sick. And so um, I sneak out my bedroom window and my best friends, big brother's best friends um, were hoodlums. And I got raped as a virgin Mm. at 15. And I believe Mm. now that I was groomed to put myself in that position by my father. And I... What do you mean by that? Well, there was obviously things that happened in my home with, with my dad um, mm, that okay. um, that I have a lot of which was repressed that I had evidence of that have certainly come to light. And I've had mm. memories come back through EMDR, you know, and that's a whole nother story that that right. that'll be probably my second book. I, but uh, suffice it, I definitely snuck out my bedroom window and I was groomed not to know how to say no. Mm. Even as an adult, I'm a yes girl, you know, it's not so much now Mm. and the last few years, but uh, it's like, if I say no, you won't, you won't like me. I won't be good enough. And maybe that stemmed from being adopted by a pervert. I don't know. Um, Or just having that empty womb feeling like, you know, I just want to be loved, you know? So uh, I was really driven to put myself in places to be hurt, and I was raped as a virgin, and I got pregnant. And back in, it was 1972, in a Catholic family, there was no discussion. Like, my editor kept saying, well, show a scene of the conversation, how they're going to tell you, or that you're going to relinquish your child for adoption. I'm like, there was none. There was never a discussion. Maybe because... Uh, adoption when was normalized in my family, or maybe because we were Catholic and that's just what you did, or I don't know. I just know that there was never, I was, there was oppression and tyranny in my family. Uh, there was, I believe I, I have discovered that I had Stockholm syndrome as well from some things that happened in my home. And you know, all this came out through my, through my writing process. And, and my son, he goes, mom, he was 22 at the time. It sounds like you had Stockholm syndrome. I would have for sure run off and told if that happened to me. And I'm like, oh, what? That's kind of harsh. And I did some mm-hmm. research. Yeah, abused children can have Stockholm syndrome. So and I'm not making excuses for relinquishing my child. Yeah. But I relinquished my child, which is still, I'm still not over it. You know, she's going to be 50 in June. I'll never get over it. Um, yeah. So... There were no options. I went to a, a nun Catholic charities and um, I had biweekly or weekly meetings with a nun where she was my friend. My parents locked me in the house. All my vandalism, all the criminal activity stopped, Yeah, which was, you know, a gift from the heavens. I'm sure. Cause I probably would have ended up prison eventually. And mm-hmm. um, I was under the influence of my very Catholic mother and she became my lifeline because my friends never came over anymore it was a really dark six months and it was winter in winter in Alaska. You've got six months of darkness. Everybody's hunkered down. And, um, you know, as a, I wrote in a journal during that time and, 
certainly been helpful in my manuscript because many things I've repressed, like signing the papers. In my recollection, it was in an office, but in my journal and my mother's journal, which I have as well, it was in my hospital room. Mm. So there's so much that was pushed down when I left her. I mean, I got to see her. I groomed the nun to let me see my child because at the Costa Hospital, you didn't get to see your baby if you were relinquishing. Yeah. But because I was an adoptee and I had no one on the planet that was my relative, I had no DNA genes to recognize. I had nothing. And it was just identity that I was looking for, too, you know. Yeah. So I, uh, they, they told me they'd let me see her. And the nun was gone. She was sent to the lower 48, which they called outside in Alaska. You're sent outside, you're sent to the lower 48 during the time that I... Um, had my child, and she didn't bring her to my room, but I got to see her a few times. And there's some really interesting details around all of that that I don't have time to get into. And my perceptions of that time, I, after I had her, I remember waking up in the morning in my hospital room. I'd been awake for 24 hours for the labor, and I, my eyes weren't open yet. But I had this crushing weight of dread, like this soul-crushing weight, where I knew I didn't know what it was because I wasn't awake yet. And then mm. when I woke up, it was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to have to give my baby away. Yeah. And, I mean, I've always filled with food. Since when I got pregnant with her, I gained a lot of weight. I used to be the skinny kid that couldn't gain weight, but um, I learned that I could eat and feel better. And so as at 15, I put on 50 pounds during that pregnancy. Mm. But that morning, I couldn't eat my breakfast. I couldn't eat for weeks. Everything was cardboard in my mouth. I couldn't swallow it. And um, nobody took me to counseling. Like, nobody brought casseroles to my house. I didn't get a death certificate. There was no funeral. There was no birth certificate. There was no nothing. You know, they didn't take me to counseling. Nobody said, how are you feeling? I feel like people assume that because you relinquished a child, you don't care. That's not a deal. And I was 15. I turned 16 the following month. Yeah. And I remember my 16th birthday, I wrote in my journal, sweet 16 and never been kissed. Ha, like sarcastic, like what 16 year old pregnant, you know, Mm. mother is, you know, and, and I never told anybody about the rape. I hid it. Um, I knew that I would be they, my parents would make a huge think about it, that I'd be humiliated mm. through the, mm-hmm. and now what I know about my um, abuser, it was a really good thing I didn't say anything. But I hid that for decades. Mm. And um, wow, that, that, that whole thing, what came about and the things that I learned about the father was startling. It happened in 2016 through the writing and some investigation completely turned my world upside down. Like, wait for it. (laughs) It was just insane. And yeah, so it's been a really interesting journey. Yeah. So at 15 years old, did you realize what adoption meant? I mean, I know you were adopted, so you probably did, but it sounds like because you were Catholic, it was just, that was what was going to happen. And it didn't really matter what you were thinking or, you know, it's so weird because I don't remember thinking a lot, you know, and when I was trying to write this manuscript thinking, what was I thinking? When I came home from school and was told I was pregnant and that's a whole very interesting scenario, what happened. I knew that my hope of being popular and having boyfriends and things at the new high school was never going to be. I think I knew that I was going to be shut away. And I knew I was going to be pregnant, but I didn't let myself think about what that looked like. Mm-hmm. It was like I, I repressed things that were painful. And at that point, I didn't have that love for my infant yet because I was just brand new, pregnant. But I definitely thought about it later on throughout the pregnancy and close to the end. And it's so interesting. I believe I was groomed to relinquish my child partly because I was adopted. Okay, so if I was told all along that I was lucky and that my mother loved me so much, she was selfless because she wanted me to have a mommy and a daddy, then how could I keep my child and be selfish if my mother wasn't? Mm. (laughs) Yeah. You know, 
And then the nun told me all these wonderful things about the wonderful parents she had found for my child. How could I let those wonderful people down? Mm. They've been waiting so long. I went an extra month. You know, I was overdue. Mm. Uh, You know, it's this people pleasing and this, you know, I I never had a voice like, no, I want to keep my baby. Or even can I keep my baby? Yeah. And, you know, the nun wouldn't love me and wouldn't like me if she knew that, you know, and all the time that I was going to this counseling and what I wrote about in my journal is scenarios on how I could find her one day Mm. and how I could meet her in 18 years. Now I was only 15, but how could I meet her? And that's what I wrote about. I never, ever considered that I could keep her. It was always about meeting her. Yeah. And that's my only goal for years was finding my biological family. My kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to find my biological mother and I want to find my daughter. That's all I cared about. There was nothing else that mattered. I didn't go to college. I turned into an alcoholic and a drug addict (laughs) after we moved to California and um, repressed all that with drugs and alcohol. Um, Yeah, it was messy. I just wonder when you said that you were a month overdue, I don't know why this just popped in my head, but it was almost like, was that because you didn't want to let her go? I think so. Your body was holding on as long as it could Mm -hmm. because you knew it was coming. Yeah. Yeah. So you did get to see your, you know, I want to say something. I want to say something really quick. I did a, uh, an adoptee retreat about a year after I started writing and I went to this retreat and I'm going to get emotional. You know, I had never really been around other adoptees, other than my brother. He thinks my mother's a saint. So I really wanted to feel connection to other people like me. And so we were in this wonderful um, setting in Berkeley. As a, a, one of the facilitators was a writer, Anne Heffron. And the other facilitator was Pam Cardono, who's a uh, therapist. Mm-hmm. And then there was a number of, there were all women that came from all over the country for this. It was an hour for me. It's really cool. And I remember the first evening in the room, getting to know each other in this room, and we're all talking and going around and telling about our stuff. I got emotional. Now, I'm emotional on this, but generally I'm not emotional. I'm really strong and, you know, uh, but I started getting fearful that I wasn't going to be accepted Mm -hmm. because I'd been listening to podcasts and I heard all these adoptees being really angry at birth parents, you know? And um, I thought I wasn't going to be accepted because I'm an adoptee first, mm-hmm. right? And um, I raised my hand, and it was a real brave act, you know, to say, I'm afraid. Yeah. And um, Pam had everybody go around the room and tell them each person spoke to me directly, which was very uncomfortable, <laughs> and <laughs> told me what they thought of me. And it was all beautiful and from the heart. And so... Yeah, that was really incredible for me. And yeah. and then I went under underwater and I didn't do a lot of adoptees things for a while because I just needed to get this writing done, you know, so. I had to be super powerful though, hearing that, because I do see a lot of people that are hurting, lashing out at first parents mm-hmm. and um, especially people saying, how could you do that when you know what it's like to be an adoptee? But at 15, how much did you really know? And even still, like, there's so many circumstances. I didn't know. I, no, I didn't know because, yeah. you know, as an adoptee, like when my daughter asked me to write my memoir because I was an adoptee and found my birth family and then relinquished a child and was reunited with her, uh, she thought it was fascinating. And to me, it wasn't interesting. <laughs> I know no, no nothing else. Yeah. To me, it's just That's my life. boring information yeah. that I've lived. Yeah, it's my life. The other, the stuff that I wanted to know, the stuff that was uncovered, the things that I knew I wanted to figure out, that was what spurred me to write this. And within that, this beautiful story erupted of being an adoptee that relinquished a child. Yeah. And the pain on both sides of that, you know, uh, birth parents, you know, it doesn't matter anybody that hurts people regardless, like I did when I was a teenager, hurt people, hurt people. And birth parents, and not all of them, natural mothers, these ones that do secondary rejection, which is just excruciating for me to even imagine that people have to go through that. 
those people didn't get there. They got there by circumstances that we did not live. We did not have those experiences. Like, unless you walk in their shoes, you yeah. don't know their background, their DNA, the way they think, how they were brought up, their experiences. And, and so the answer for me in all pain and resentment and anger is compassion mm-hmm. and looking at why did they do that? Yeah. Sometimes we'll never know. Right. But I think that I, it came out in my manuscript for sure. And I was able to forgive myself because I was always felt guilty for relinquishing my child. Mm. Always. And especially when I came out of the fog and started realizing what that really means, being an adoptee, being a relinquished by your mother, where you cocooned in a womb for nine months, yeah. hearing her voice, memorizing this. You can memorize the song she sang as early as 16 weeks mm. and then it's gone. It's gone. Yeah. You know, and you have this, this soul trauma yep. that can't be filled. It can't be filled. I've tried. I've tried for 65 years to fill that mm. and it's unfillable. Yeah. So certainly have healed and certainly been enlightened by a lot of this, but you know, there's some things you just can't ever forgive yourself for, including relinquishing a child, regardless if you're adopted or not. Mm. Yeah. So you did get to see your daughter for a few days. What was that like? Yeah, I did. Well, I checked her for similarities. Mm. You know, she had my little Cupid bow on my lips and she had brown hair. It was very light. Her head turned to me. She knew me. Mm. She knew I was her mother. And then they take her from me, you know, like my visiting hours were up, you know, like I was a prisoner and uh, I hadn't yet signed the papers. My mom got to hold her. My brother wanted me to keep her. Mm. You know, he was always at the glass. A couple of my good friends came who I'm still connected to today, but most of my friends abandoned me during that time. And then I left the hospital. I remember leaving and looking back at the hospital out the back window or side window and I the pain was so intense it was so great I was gonna say I can't imagine um I can't describe it you know it's indescribable it's indescribable pain Mm. you know um and I would just said I just won't think about it right now I just won't think about it right now I just I didn't know what else to do because the pain was so bad I felt like I was gonna die yeah and so that's what I began doing is just pushing down all of that I just won't think about it right now. And not to say I didn't think about her when I, you know, over the weeks that I I left her. I feel the weight of her in my arms. I remember the smell of her and peck my nose in her neck. I I got a couple pictures of her from the the nun sent them to me after they got all worn and dog-eared. Yeah. And went on with my life. How did you cope? I pushed it down. How did you cope in the coming days, months? I pushed it down. My mom, if I talked to her, if I, there was no one I could talk to about it because if I talked to my mom, she'd cry. Mm. I never wanted to make my mom cry. You know, I came home from the adoption um, when I was in Prego school. They sent me to Prego school. I called it Prego school where <laughs> it was just with unwed mothers, you know, at the admin building in Anchorage. And mm. the state adoption agency had come and talked to us about our options. And I'd already made plans with Catholic charities. But I walked up to the lady afterwards and I said, I'm adopted. And I said, my parents don't know anything about me, about my family. And I went home to tell my mom and she started crying. You know, she felt compassion for my birth mother as well, you know, that, Mm. that she got to love me while my birth mother didn't, you know, so adoption is originally the triad, you know, with the adoptee, adoptive parents and the birth parent. Mm. It's now the constellation because there's so many that are affected. It's not just, even the adoptive parents feel badly, you know, or, and afraid that their child is going to be removed from them. But now it's like, I've talked to people that, like my daughter, the one I relinquished for adoption, I was there a last couple of years ago in July and her daughter, I was talking to her daughter, my granddaughter, and she was like 12 or 11 at the time. And I said something about being adopted. She goes, you're adopted? And I go, yeah. She goes, my mom's adopted <laughs> and my dad's adopted. 
So my daughter ended up, it's like we find each other in a Petri dish. Yeah. And she ended up marrying an adoptee. Wow. And my granddaughter's like blown away, you know, like, and then I was just talking to my daughter's sister who was adopted because they adopted two other Mm. girls who's a therapist. She's been, you know, interested in the adoption thing and done some of her own work. Even her daughters who aren't adopted are affected by it. Yeah. It just spreads out aunts, uncles. It's not just one single thing. I know it's It's all collateral damage. That's what I call it. (laughs) Their collateral damage. For sure. Yeah. Um, did you wonder about her though then through the years? Like finally, were you able to like think about her? Like what'd she look like? What'd she turn out to be doing? Oh, for heaven's sakes, yes. All I did for years is think about her. You know, on her birthdays, I'd sit really quiet and really still and think maybe we could connect through the cosmos. She'd mm-hmm. be thinking about me. You know, I did the same with my my mm-hmm. first mother, yet she'd been deceased. She was deceased when I relinquished my daughter and I thought I could feel her wow. showing me the way, but she was already gone eight years when I relinquished my baby. Wow. Yeah. And I needed her to show me the way I wrote it in my journal. Yeah. She was brave. I must do the same. I need her to show me the way, mm. you know, how sad, how sad. Anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. My daughter, Mary, who ended up with the same name as me, and uh, <laughs> I thought about her on every birthday. She'd be taking her first steps right now. She's having her first birthday. And it was mm. always all my scenarios that I, I did. They were always on the other side of a fence, like seeing her in the schoolyard, watching her, listening to her little voice. I would never have approached her because I would not have wanted to hurt the birth of biological. I don't know what to say. Her adoptive <laughs> mother, her mother. Right. Um, yeah. You know, I'd been told by my mom that would be horrifying. So I would never have done that. And then I, I imagined peering through a window. All my imagined scenarios were always behind a fence or a window. Mm. You know, I knew my place. Yeah. I was invisible. And my always adoptive parents were smarter and better than me. You know, and so, yes, I thought about her all the time. That was my only goal was to meet her when she turned 18. That was it. Yeah. How did you find her? Um, She was going to be 18 in six months and I couldn't wait. And I started telling my friends, you know, she's 18. I can hardly wait. I'm, you know, these, and people start saying, well, what if she doesn't want to find you? Maybe you should wait and see if she wants to find you. And I, that just angered me. How dare you? Of course, she's going to want to find me. She's going to want to know me as much as I want to know her. And maybe I created that because of I knew she always wanted to find me. So six months early, I couldn't wait. And I called the adoption agency in Alaska, uh, since moved, of course. And uh, they said, call us in six months and we'll see. We can, you know, we'd have to contact the parents and see if they were open to a reunification. And then we would facilitate that for you. So they told me I could write a letter in preparation for that. I couldn't write a letter. I couldn't even write her a letter when, you know, before I had her, the nun told me I could write her a letter that she, you know, would give to the parents to give to her. And even though there was nothing in the entire universe I would have wanted more than a letter from my birth mother, Mm -hmm. nothing would have been more important to me. I still couldn't write that letter to her. Mm. Everything I could say was so trite. Yeah. You know, like, I couldn't keep you because you needed to have two parents. I love you. Bullshit. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was just, I, and I felt stupid. Anything that I would write, you would know that I was stupid and that I couldn't write well. And I felt guilt for that for years that I never wrote that letter, mm-hmm. you know. So a few weeks after I made that call to Catholic Social Services, I got a call at my desk and they said, um, we're sorry it's taken so long for us to get back to you. I'm like, I wasn't expecting them to call me. What do you mean? Well, we have a picture here, a picture of who? Of your daughter. And I had never cried. I left that hospital and I pushed down my emotion. If I cried, I wouldn't, I would die. And so I'd never cried. And I tried to cry. Like I got sober in 1984 and I had a daughter in 1985 and I knew that there was something wrong that I'd never cried. You know, I was now sober. I was now working on myself and I could see that not crying was, there was, you know, so I started to read my journal or my mom's journal. And as soon as I'd feel the emotion, it was like a faucet was being 
slowly shut off and I couldn't access it. It was like, oh, it's gone. So when the adoption agent called and said that she had called within a couple of days of my call six months early with her mother, all of it came out at once. For the first time I was speechless, oh I was like snot and tears. I couldn't even see to hang up the phone. And my coworkers rushed to my cubicle thinking somebody died. <laughs> and um, yeah. 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 I know you said in that article um, that you wrote that I read, it said for 18 years, I hadn't been able to cry for my daughter. The pain was too great. I had shut it off so that I could survive. So what was it like actually seeing your daughter for the first time in 18 years? So it was annoying because the facilitator wanted us to write letters back and forth first, mm. you know, and I just want to, I'm instant gratification girl. Yeah. So it's my daughter. She's just like me. I'm like, hell no. But that's what we had to do. I had to write a letter to her parents, a letter to her. I didn't know where she lived at the time. So I had to send them up to Alaska from California. And then they sent them to wherever she lived in the Midwest, which I didn't know what that was. Mm. And then they had to send letters back up through Alaska. And so I had to write this letter. And it's crazy. I wrote the letter probably the next day, both letters, boom, 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 done. (laughs) like done. I wrote her a letter. I wrote her parents a letter and um, I kept them of course. And they're in my manuscript and I read them and I'm like, Oh man, this is crazy. Uh, This is heart wrenching. It was beautiful. And then they wrote letters back and she wrote me a letter. So I had time to get my feelings right. And so I knew I went to Blockbuster back in the day, it was 91, (laughs) and I got all those sad movies I shunned. I would never watch sad movies about loss, about pain around a child, about people dying from cancer because my adoptive father died from cancer. I would never watch those. People would say, hey, let's go to, hell no, I'm not watching that movie. There is no, and I never, I guessed that it was, there was pain there, like in Pandora's box that I wasn't. Mm -hmm. ready to access, but I never really thought about it. I just knew I did, you know, and so I would sit, I got blocks of Kleenex and for weeks, I just watched all the sad movies I wouldn't watch. And I leaned into the pain when they came and I sobbed and I let myself release all that so that when we got together on our first phone call, it was, none of that was on her, you know, none of that. And it was, when she first called me, it was like catching up with an old friend. It was, And she didn't have to ask me any questions because I gave her everything that I would have wanted to know from my first mother. And we had a two hour conversation and it was just getting to know each other. Yeah. And on my website, I don't have it yet. I have a number of um, videos. I have a reunification video that was taken by the camera crew in 1980 when I met my biological father. Mm. He came to the airport and they were interviewed at my home. I have uh, a number of videos, but I do, I haven't released it yet. The video of meeting my daughter at the airport and there were tears. And it was, it was when I first saw her picture, when they, the adoption agency sent me the picture before the letters it was, I, I raced home. I called my neighbor every couple of hours. Has mail come yet? Has a mail? Check my mailbox. Check my mailbox. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was like a 20 minute drive home. And I, on my lunch hour, I raced home. I opened it and I looked at it and it was her graduation picture. And it was surreal. It was like, I was looking at someone I knew. Yeah. It was like looking at myself. It was bizarre. And, um, that moment was was just incredible. Mm. I was finally touching that real part of me that needed that identity and my own child, you know? Yeah. Pretty crazy stuff. So I'm assuming it's still good today. Like you oh, guys yeah. are still in contact and Yep. We FaceTime. Thank goodness for FaceTime. Sometimes we go months without a call. You know, she's got a busy life. She has two daughters. Um, I have a very busy life. And then we'll FaceTime it. She'll call me often on Sundays. In fact, I just put this on my website. I haven't pushed it out, but it's there. And um, she called me with this unknown pain, wanting me to pull her up from a dark hole, Mm. the hole I I probably put her in. So we've had, you know, it's not without complexities for sure, but it's like she's a spinning image of me. When she came here for her 18th birthday, they sent her I had a big party in my backyard and a reunification party. We dressed up like twins and we look like twins. She walks like me. She talks like me. She has a potty mouth like me. Um, (laughs) I mean, and we both grew up in very traditional Catholic families, Mm. like both. And we are not traditional in any sense of the word (laughs) at all. 
Yeah, it's we finish each other's sentences. We have the same clothes in our closets. Oh, wow. um, we have both bleach our dark hair blonde. It's really <laughs> something. Yeah. That's cool. So in that article, you also said that you said, I have arrived at a place where I can forgive my younger self. My guilt and shame have been replaced with compassion and gratitude. How did you heal that part of yourself? How did you get to that gratitude and forgiveness? I think a lot of it started when we were reunited. Mm. I met my biological family. I still felt guilt and shame back then and always wondered when I got the, you know, the envelope of pictures of my biological family. I wondered what it would be like to open an envelope of pictures of my daughter someday. And mm. so that, that was a beginning. It wasn't until the reunification in 1991 where I really started getting healed. I still felt a lot of shame uh, when I met her biological or her adoptive family for the first time. And then I got sober in 1984 and started working on my recovery and people I'd hurt and trying to make things right. And so that has been huge. I've been working and mentoring people for decades. 39 years. But when I started writing, and that's when things changed, mm. because I couldn't see things the way they really were, because I was looking at them with a stuck child's mind, a, a mind of shame and guilt. And I still felt guilty for the rape. I thought it was my fault, because yeah. I didn't get beat up. All that stuff got healed. I think as much as I can in this amount of time that I've been working on myself, it's a process. Yeah. I really have compassion for those that are just getting started because it's a rough road. And I, like I did, I, I don't have alcohol or drugs or even relationships to push that down with anymore. Mm. I had to learn how to deal with emotion without repressing it other, other than food, you know, but even that it's been an up and down journey. Right. So what advice would you have for first mothers or birth mothers that, that are struggling right now? (laughs) that's a tough one connection um i've reached out recently because i'm getting ready to you know finishing my manuscript and trying to get more connected in the community i've come out of this hole and i've reached out to birth mothers that i found on social media and i feel it's sort of like i've had a number of friends that have lost people loved ones sisters and going to a therapist the grief therapist always says grief group is the best. It's connecting with others with the same pain. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm hoping, like what you're doing here with your podcast, bless your heart, really, because this is where we get to connect yeah. and hopefully reach out to people that have had our same experiences. Mm-hmm. So at some point here, I'm going to probably be facilitating retreats for maybe the adoptees or birth parents or both. I'm not sure, yeah. but things. That is the key, is to really connect with each other and uh, not feel so alone. It helps with the shame. It helps with the guilt. It helps with the pain. So that's what I would say. Reach out and talk to those that have experienced it. Adoptees, not so much for those natural (laughs) birth (laughs) parents. Wouldn't say that's probably, uh, it's pretty triggering because adoptees have had that, they're the brunt of our decisions, you know. Hmm. Yeah, I just, you know, you and I had Catherine Bogley on the show, both um, just help me as an adoptee, though, see that other side so I can have more compassion for the first mother's side. And it helps me deal with what I've had to go through with my first mother, maybe helping me understand why she does some of the things or has done some of the things that she's done in the past. Um, and until we kind of have that compassion for each other, then that's just huge. It's so huge. You have to hear these stories. And, you know, mm-hmm. when I, when I interviewed Catherine, I was just like, oh, I don't want to do this. This is going to be tough for me, you know, too. And I remember um, in the beginning of the interview, just saying, I know you adoptees are going to want to turn this off right now before it even starts, but don't do it. You have to hear this story because it changed my perspective, totally changed it. So, I mean, I think you're brave for coming on yourself and telling your story, especially being an adoptee and, and having the first mother experience as well. It's, it's a 
a unique perspective that um, I think is really going to make people stop and listen, you know, a little bit more because you have both, both perspectives. Um, so you've been writing this memoir for seven years. Um, and is there, you said you have a website. What, how can we find you? Uh, yeah. Do you know when this memoir is coming out? What's happening? <laughs> <laughs> Good questions. Uh, MonicaHall.com. So okay. um, that's my website. I'll put that my in name. the show notes. Yes, mm-hmm. please. And you can sign up and follow there and put in your email so that when the book's published or when I write uh, another essay, then you could see them. I, there was a long period of time or initially I was writing every month. And then when it got really dark and deep, you'll see I didn't put, you know, put an essay up for a couple of years. I didn't have anything. Uh-huh. It was like, I was just, yeah. yeah. But now I've, I've got a couple up there and um, this most recent one was really a heartfelt one about my daughter. And so monicahall.com, Monica Hall author, and Monica Hall on Facebook. I'm wearing a goofy hat. I look really cute. My daughter took pictures of me out at the river. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got hats on on all these pictures, which I don't always wear, but they look cute. Okay. And, <laughs> and then um, on Instagram, I'm Monica Hall author as well. And I'm hopefully, I've got a YouTube channel, Monica Hall author, I believe, adoptee. Yeah. So they're all there. I'm working it. Yeah. Give me all the links and I'll put them all in the show notes, how people can find you and connect with you. And I will definitely want to get signed up for that memoir when it comes yeah, out. Yeah. Yes. So. About when it's going to be released. So I'm right now I'm working on getting an agent. And if that doesn't come to fruition in a fairly short period of time, I'll self-publish. I've got two books, um, but this one's the one that's absolutely ready to go. Yeah. And I'm really excited about it. It's me too. It's actually really good. Me too. It blows my mind from somebody that had a really hard time in school. Like, I'm like, a great that. storyteller. Yeah, I did this. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. Oh, yeah. Love it. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thanks for coming on today, Monica. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thanks so much for what you're doing for us. No, thank you. Really appreciate it. I cannot wait for this memoir to come out and I will let you know as soon as you can get it. I know there is so much more to this story than Monica is telling us right now, but that only makes me so much more excited for this memoir to come out. You know, I have to say, I am so blessed to be doing this podcast and meeting such wonderful people that have become friends. This community is amazing. The Constellation community is absolutely amazing. And I couldn't ask to have better support and friends. And I'm just so grateful for these people that are willing to be brave enough to tell their stories and educate the world. We are doing it. We are doing it one story at a time. And if you have not contacted me to get your story on the podcast, please do so. I have an email, mindyourownkarma at gmail.com. If you would like to know more about Mind Your Own Karma, I have a website, mindyourownkarma.com. That is where you can find more out about me and the podcast. There are resources on there. I have a bio on there. You can search for episodes on my website lots of things on there to see. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram as well as YouTube. If you accepted my challenge to subscribe to the podcast last week, thank you so much. And this week, I'm going to ask you to rate and review the podcast on your listening platform. It will help get the word out about this podcast. Thanks again, Monica, for coming on Mind Your Own Karma, my new friend. I thank you for your friendship. I thank you for your story. I thank you for your honesty. And I just know your memoir is going to be a bestseller. And thank you, Karma Crew, for listening in today. As always, take what you need and leave what you don't. And always remember to mind your own karma. I'll see you next time.